We're now reading a new book, Passing Through the Gateless Barrier by Guo Gu, and this is the introduction. The Gateless Barrier, Wu Manguan, Mu Man Khan, is a 13th century work that offers 48 entryways to wake up to your life. These entryways are presented as a barrier or checkpoint at a gate. They are short cases of life scenarios that show where you are stuck. The truth is there is no gate or barrier. <coughs> where you feel stuck is precisely where you realize awakening or freedom. In other words, all of life's ups and downs are opportunities to realize your true nature. This is why these checkpoint or entryways are gateless. The main message of this work is clear. You are already free, but knowing this is not enough. You have to live it. Take everything you meet as an opportunity that can free you from bondage. This book shows you how. If you allow the entryways or cases in this book to stand as mere stories from the distant past unrelated to your life, then even if you read this book a hundred times, you will still meet barriers everywhere you go. But if you take these cases as insights to aspects of your life, then they will come alive and you will wake up from the slumber of delusion, vexations and suffering. You will open up to wisdom. John Master Woman Wikai, 1183-1260, whose name actually means open to wisdom and realize the gateless, is the compiler of the gateless barrier. In 1228, he compiled and edited 48 cases of past John Master's interactions with their students, many of which involve awakening. These short, insightful cases are called gongan, Japanese koans. Each case is followed by women's own comments and poetic verses as pointers. The pointers show you how to approach and investigate each gongan. In this book, I comment on both the gongans and women's pointers to make them more accessible. Gongan as text, question mark. Gongan literally means public case. The term comes from Tang Dynasty civil court documents referring to legal cases that must be passed or resolved by the magistrate. Chan masters draw on this judiciary metaphor to refer to be cases of certain past Chan masters and practitioners who have realized awakening and passed through the barrier of life. Just like magistrates who review, scrutinize, and pass judgment on legal cases, Chan masters started to compile and comment on the, okay. Short. Uh, pardon me? I don't see it. Oh, yes. Okay. Sayings. <laughs> there we go. Sayings and encounters of earlier practitioners. Their comments, like the magistrate's verdict, evaluated the most important turning point or catalyst of those awakening experiences by giving readers pointers to insight, inspiring them to take up these cases as their own objects of contemplative investigation. These books became known as Gong Collection. So I have a question. I know that there's a, there was this practice in Theravadan Buddhism uh, where your teacher would verify your enlightenment. And are these cases somewhat in that sense that they would they would be testing your knowledge, your understanding, your enlightenment, your 
Um, well, yes and no. So are they kind of playing with that idea? I think the um, yeah. I I I think it's a it's a different mechanism because it's not um, it's more relational, and it's less about you go like in the Theravada tradition. You go off and get enlightened, and then you have it verified. It's really happens in the encounter. So this is what makes it a little bit distinct. Okay, so this be, I think this would be Ellen, right? The Genesis. Ellen, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was muted. Okay. <laughs> Uh, is how's that pronounced? G O N G apostrophe A N. How's that pronounced? Gong on. Gong on. Okay. The genesis of Gong on collections is complicated. Chan and Zen scholars note that the stories are Gong on collections. The, that the stories in Gong on collections draw from mainly ninth-century Chan masters' biographies and discourse records. They also show that by the 11th century, many Chan, Chan masters' discourse records already included a subgenre of texts called verses on old cases or songu, which can, which can be considered a precursor to going on collections of the 12th century. This suggests that by the 11th century, the practice of commenting on earlier Chan masters' stories was already common. However, this is as far as scholars have gotten in his historicizing the origin of Gong'ans. I have found that in the Wanling record of Chan Master Hongbo Gongji, which dates to the ninth century, Chan Master Hongbo was already encouraging his students to observe Gong'ans. This suggests that at least one master referred to word going on not as a literary work but as a method of practice as early as the ninth century. However, it is hard to say definitively that he was the progenitor or of going on practice because there is only one instance and it does appear and and it doesn't appear anywhere else in his discourse record. It may be possible that this instance was inserted by later editors. At the same time, we also can't deny that there was an oral tradition of gong-on practice before the 11th century. History testifies that by the time ideas are committed to written texts, they have already been circulating orally for a long time. Indeed, this early phase of oral tradition within Chan cannot be overlooked. Gong-on comments are usually compiled by Chan master's disciples. To put the cases together with their master's oral comments from different teaching occasions without any order of profundity or sequence. The colloquialism and down-to-earth flavor of the comments are also preserved. An introduction to the final collection by the master might be added after all the cases were compiled and edited. Similar to the process of how Chan discourse records were compiled or how Buddhist scriptures were translated, Many people's hands were involved in the production of a Gongan collection. The notions of authorship or copyright are much more fluid than in our modern times. Gongan collections are unlike other Buddhist writings. Gongans do not explain or reify any kind. Wait, wait, Sorry. wait, Glenn. Hold on, I think we skipped Gail. I skip, we skipped oh. Gail. We, yeah, Gail is next. Hey. Are you there, Gail? I don't see Gail. No, maybe she fell off. Okay. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Glenn. 
we lost her somehow. <laughs> okay. All right, Gail, if you're listening, you hop in behind me here. Um, where was I? Uh, their form also reads more like transcripts of vivid encounters of life situations. They are not static, and their meanings change according to whomever reads them. The literary even though literary conventions were used in all the Ga'an collections, they cannot be reduced to mere literature as if they were products of discursive exercises. In fact, they're really not meant to be read at all. They are instead meant to be engaged with and actualized. They do something to the reader and shape the lives of practitioners rather than just presenting some idea. This dynamic performative dimension of Ga'an goes beyond the limits of what a text is. The Gateless Barrier is a great example. It became one of the most influential and beloved Gong collections, more so than any other, like the Book of Serenity compiled by Chan Master Wansong Zinju uh, in 1224, or the Blue Cliff Record compiled by uh, Wan Kikin in 1228. Gail's return, so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gail, are you back? Yes, I'm back. Uh, for some strange reason, my computer just shut down, so we'll see what happens. Okay, so so you you can go on from here, sure. gong on as a method okay. of practice. Gong on as a method of practice. Gong on collections are much more than just books. As a method of spiritual cultivation, gong ongs are unique in the whole of Buddhism and in all the history of human development, for that matter. There is really nothing like them. Before I explain how to use the gong ongs as methods of practice, it is important to keep in mind that they come from everyday life situations and are meant to be engaged with. Thus, gongons cannot be studied or learned or analyzed. Discursive explanations of and intellectual speculations about life are not life. None of the gongons tell you what life is. They only put a spotlight on different aspects of life. The purpose is to show that all situations, its ups and downs, are opportunities to awaken to your true nature. To many people, they seem to be absurd, upside down. This is because most people live their lives in an upside down way, bound by their own rational thinking, concepts, and proliferation of notions about the world, which they take as the world. Thus, gongons turn us right side up and free us from our own bondage. To engage in gongon practice then, is to use the cases as a method to investigate your life and what it means <laughs> to live according to your true nature. This engagement is called investigating Chan. Uh, investigation here does not mean thinking. Thinking is always dualistic and discriminatory and has the tendency to reify things as real and unchanging. Ordinary pupils' thinking is a form of self-grasping. Thinking is by nature self-referential. Because it is self-referential and filtered through words and language, it also reifies whatever people experience as out there, real, and separate. Being diluted by the thinking process a sense of self and other come into being, and people are forever alienated from their experience. So what is that um, thinking is by nature self-referential? It's, it's always me thinking. 
So it was my thoughts, me thinking, this is what I think. Uh, Matt and I were having a little conversation the other day and Matt said, you always want to be right. And that sounds very much like the self-grasping, grasping grasping at being right as opposed Mm to... Well, it's part of how we identify ourselves. It's part part of how we construct ourselves. I'm the one who's right about this. You know, and we're living in a, we're living in a world, obviously, that where we see, you know, everyone's right. <laughs> yeah, and, and for me, when I think, there's always this sort of um, unacknowledged thought that there is a me thinking that yeah. I'm thinking, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, therefore, I am. who is this i (laughs) Uh, this is not to say that thoughts themselves are the problem the problem is the tendency to take the concept of a thing to be the thing itself because of this delusion attachment arises and suffering follows to investigate chan is to use poison against poison to use a gong on as a springboard to realize that which that which lies below before words language and con- to realize that that to realize that which lies beyond words language and concepts arise before your- that which lies before words language and concepts arise okay let me try again as a springboard to realize that which lies before words language and concepts arise your true nature which can never be defined or reified or grasped Therefore, whatever concept you come up about gong on is just another concept. Wait, Martha, I think it's Leon. I, uh, I, thank I you, know. Leon. <laughs> Leon's, yeah. Therefore, whatever concept you come up with about a gong on is just another concept. It's not freedom. Gong ons are not to be solved. There's nothing to solve. The stories in gong ons defy logic and force the discriminating logical mind to become stuck, turning words, language, and concepts on their head, and thereby shattering self-grasping so practitioners can wake up to who they truly are. So the point is not to use the gong-on to your self-referentiality. How do you do this? Gong-ons use words and concepts to push words and concepts to their limits. This is what I mean by using poison against poison. Gong-ons provide an impossibility, an impasse, so that you are left with a great sense of not knowing, impenetrability, and wonderment. They give you nothing to hang on to. So all words, concepts, and everything you've ever known about yourself, or this and that, falls away. This sense of not knowing is most precious in gongon practice. You must absorb yourself in the story of the gongon and be completely engulfed by the irresolvable impasse it presents. This experience of impenetrability, wonderment, and irresolvable impasse is known in Chan as the doubt sensation, or yi king in Chinese. It is the great questioning mind. This is the whole point of the Gongon method. When this indescribable wonderment engulfs you and continues for a long time, permeating every aspect of your life, it is possible that a catalyst, such as a sound from the environment or a form that you may see, 
will suddenly shatter this great ball of doubt sensation. Along with this shattering, your self-attachment may suddenly drop away. When this happens, you see the world with new eyes, free from the filtration of self. Everything then comes to life for the first time. This is awakening, but that doesn't mean practice is complete. Your self-grasping may come back, so you must continue to practice. This doubt sensation of feeling of doubt is not suspicion. On the contrary, it is established on the great conviction of faith that by using this method, you can apprehend your original true nature, your intrinsic freedom. This doubt is more like a sense of wonderment, the feeling of not knowing, but of acutely wanting to know. It is quite dynamic and alive, yet free from wandering thoughts and discursive thinking. The concentration developed through working with a gone-on is unlike traditional concentration methods of single-mindedness. Single this sense of wonderment or questioning mind is undivided yet not standing, concentrated yet engulfing encompassing everything in, on daily activities in life. Is this Nelda? Are you next? Um, thank you. Well, my, I'm on an iPhone, so my list is different than yours, so I'll go. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> yeah, you're next. During meditation, this sense of wonderment can get quite intense, reaching a point where words and language are completely dropped. In that state of non-conceptuality, the discriminating mind comes to a dead end, and one remains open in wonderment. This is when the practitioner reaches a unified state of oneness, where self-referentiality is at its weakest. John Masters called this the great death. Only when even this state of oneness is dropped can the practitioner come back to life. Love that sentence. This is called the great life. There are many ways to engage with the cases. It is often not necessary to reflect on the whole story of the gongon. Each gongon has a critical turning point that has the potential to transform delusion into awakening. This critical point, called a huato, uh, Japanese it's wato, can be the focus of one's meditation. You can think of huato as a condensed version of a goan. Wado literally means that which lies before words. If words and concepts are the thorny vines that bind and delude you, then wado is the hatchet that cuts through them and frees you. This is the reason that the gongans are gateless barriers that both obstruct and liberate. They are barriers, obstacles, only if you are stuck with deluded upside down thinking. In truth, the obstacles are not obstacles at all but catalysts for awakening. Meditate on the Watu is to investigate the essence of the Gongan. It is not always so easy to generate the sense of wonderment when meditating on a Gongan because it can be quite long. It is, after all, easy for practitioners to get caught up with all the ideas and words in the Gongan. Thus, for practical reasons, most Chan practitioners meditate just on the Watu here is a popular gongan, the first in the Gateless Barrier Collection. I guess I'll read that. One day, a monk asked Chan, Chan Master Zazu Kongshin, does the dog have a Buddha nature? Zazu replied, no.
The dilemma here is that the Buddha said that all beings have Buddha nature, the potential to become awakened. So why did Zazu say no? Moreover, in his commentary on this gongon, Chan Master Wu Min said that this no is not the no, but is the opposite of yes. This means that you cannot understand it in terms of yes or no, having or not having, existing or not existing. In fact, this no, in Chinese it is Wu, in Japanese Mu, is completely impenetrable, unfathomable, yet it contains the whole truth of Buddha Dharma. So what is it? What does it mean? You cannot think through it. It would be useless to come up with more concepts about it. When you work on this gong on, you may think the answer is to bark like a dog instead of using some words or language. This is also wrong. <laughs> Yet you must know why Zazu said Wu. To simplify the meditation process of investigating this gong on, meditate just on the critical phrase, the Huatu. What is Wu? Chan Master Wu Men himself worked on this case for six long years before he had an insight. Wu Men was a disciple of Chan Master Yuelin Shiguan. One day, as woman was doing walking meditation, absorbed in the great wonderment of this watu, a wave of drumming sounds from the kitchen suddenly shattered the great doubt that had been pent up in him for six long years. After his insight, he wrote the following verse to present to Yulin to affirm his realization. A thundering clap breaks through the clear blue sky in broad daylight. All beings on this great earth suddenly open their eyes. Myriad forms and the multitudes bow down together as they dance and celebrate on Mount Sumeru. When Yulin heard this, he actually shouted it. What the hell did you realize for you to come up with this garbage? <laughs> Everybody's a critic. <laughs> Some ghost or fairies dancing around? When woman heard that, she shouted, Ha! <laughs> then roared like a lion back at to which woman repeated his verse. A thundering clap breaks through the clear blue sky in broad daylight. <laughs> All beings on this great earth suddenly open their eyes. Myriad forms and the multitudes bow down together as they dance and celebrate on Mount, Mount Sumeru. In that instant hearing his own words woman had another awake he completely broke through all traces of self from that point onward he was free in all situations self and chan buddhism chan most commonly known in the west as zen usually refers to a school that emerged in chinese buddhism that places special emphasis on meditation after all meditation is a transliteration of the sanskrit word jhana or chana as time went on the Chinese just dropped na from the term chana when referring to meditation. After centuries of adaptation and assimilation to the Chinese religious landscape, sometime around the 6th and 7th centuries, certain groups of meditators began to conceive of meditation in a unique way, different from traditional understanding of jhana. 
This group emerged as a self-conscious movement that redefined the notion of meditation to reflect the Chinese penchant for shortcuts, directness. As a result of assimilating the highest Buddhist teaching on non-duality and selflessness, these Buddhist meditation masters began to articulate Chan in terms that collapsed notions of path and destination, practice and realization, meditation and wisdom. In the traditional Buddhist framework, practice involves technical concepts that have specific meaning and certain methods must be cultivated sequentially. For example, one must first uphold precepts, then engage in meditation so as to generate wisdom. Chan Buddhism understands this linear scheme of, Buddhist, of the Buddhist path articulated in early scriptures and treatises as expedient means or conventional truth. Chan Buddhism, however, inspired by certain Mahayana scriptures, articulates the Buddhist path from the perspective of ultimate truth or emptiness and non-duality. From this perspective, all beings are already awakened. The path is the goal. Meditation is wisdom. Practice is like a baby trying to be a human being. A baby is already a human being. While a baby may not know how to walk or talk yet, that doesn't deny the baby's human humanness. The true reality of all beings is intrinsic freedom or awakening. Delusion, vexation, and suffering are only the conditioned temporary reality of all beings. This means even though you may be caught up with the vexations and challenges of life, these conditions do not define your true nature. This is the basic position of Chan. What then is the role of practice? Is it even necessary if we are already awakened? Yes. Once when the Buddha was asked metaphysical questions about the origin of the universe and so on, he compared these questions to a person shot with an arrow asking what kind of arrow it was, where it came from, and so on. The Buddha said that what is most important is to remove the arrow and recover the, from the wound. This wound is the conditions of life, delusion, vexation, suffering, all the barriers you experience. Chan focuses on the most urgent matter. That is, there is, in truth, no arrow and no shooter. Delusion, vexation, and suffering are inevitable. Yet what may seem like delusion, vexation, and suffering is your greatest gift for transformation and liberation. Why? Because to practice is to discern these shadows until you find their cause, the self. When the self suddenly vanishes, the shadows of delusion, vexation, and suffering also vanish. How do you do this? Engage with a haltao or gong on to realize that that which is before words and language generate the sense of wonderment and not knowing. If you can realize this truth of no self instantly, and if the power of your realization is strong enough, both the arrow and the shooter vanish. Yet old habits run deep and take many forms. Our illusory sense of self can come up with all kinds of stories and narratives and ideas that shape how we experience things. <clears throat> Excuse me. As long as there is a self, you will feel dis-ease, anguish, disturbed, and irritated. This is why genuine practice is... Self, 
I have a I have a question about this. Uh-huh. Uh, um, I was asking the question yesterday or the day before, whenever it was, that, you know, why does a Dalai Lama sit for four or five hours? And he's he's talking, it seems like practice is necessary because of this or that. And it seems like, so does that mean one is practicing for that reason to, or no. is that an afterthought kind no. of? The, the reasoning is always ex post facto. It's never the cause of something. The reasoning of why we do things. Yes. So though it's necessary, that's not leading the person to do it. You're not doing it for an instrumental purpose. So if you're doing it in order to accomplish something, you're missing the mark. Though if you don't do it, there'll be an effect. That's right. And that was Dogen's dilemma. Okay. I'll talk to him. Yes, there's a, there's a lot about that, you know. Well, if you turn toward it, you're you're going to miss the mark, right? The way is not knowing or not. We'll get to that. Call. <laughs> okay, who's he just likes to sit and rest. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, self in Chan and Buddhism does not refer to your personality or who you consider yourself to be on a conventional level. You may think that to let go of the self is to detach from everything, to suppress your emotions, feelings, and thoughts, or to simply ignore problems. That is wrong. Self refers to the fundamentally dualistic ways of experiencing the world, gain or loss, benefit or harm, good or bad, and birth and death. It is this way of experiencing the world that robs you of all your life. These feelings and ideas hinge on a perception that within you there is an I that always stands at the center of the world and judges everything and everyone from that perspective. It is because of the I that you have a sense of gain and loss, benefit and harm, good and bad, birth and death. This I always seeks to preserve itself at all costs. It processes everything in its way. Everything that you have ever known in your life was put in motion because of this I. This self is the source of it projects and reifies its own vision of the world into the world itself, assuming that to, that to be the sole reality. It seeks to preserve itself at all costs, process everything out there as things to be possessed or rejected. In doing so, the self alienates itself and separates itself from the world of phenomena. The self can even take itself, your sense of who you are, as a thing as well, formulating narratives and images about itself. For example, you can come up with ideas of, I am no good, I am a loser, or I am the best thing that has happened in so-and-so's life. You can make yourself feel miserable or inflated. You can alienate yourself from yourself. This sense of separation is the root of aloneness. Okay. Um, aloneness? Yeah, that's quite a say. That's quite a passage there. You can alienate yourself <laughs> from yourself. Mm -hmm. hmm. how would that go, Jess, how would that go over in your job if you told wonder, someone that? I mean, I wonder, I wonder what that looks like. What, is that, what does that look like, someone alienating themselves from when you when you step back from yourself and judge yourself and like oh I shouldn't have done that I'm terrible you're you're constantly evaluating yourself yeah 
I should, I should work out more. I shouldn't, I shouldn't eat this piece of cake. I should, you know, it's just, it's constant. Mother I, Teresa said that in the United States, she had never met so many lonely people. <laughs> so there's, I think we're very capable of doing this in the United States. We're very capable of alienating ourselves to be otherwise might be to be authentic. So like, I don't like- I'm sorry, Peg, this authenticity, um, how does that resonate within this? Uh, you don't have any choice but to be authentic. Ah. You're always being authentic. Aha! Uh -huh. <laughs> you're authentically confused or you're authentically lying or you're authentically <laughs> trying to present a certain persona so that people will like you. You're, you're authentically being yourself. You can't help it. I see. Thank There's you. There's nothing you can do to prevent that. Thank you. <laughs> um, Peg, Peg is another form of alienating self from self is when we don't see ourselves in others and don't empathize with them. And that, that, that to me would seem one form of, I see that I'm so separate from another that I can't that's, have. That's, that's alienation from others, but alienation within ourselves. Within ourselves. That's more the province of something that, like what internal family systems talks about. When people say, well, there's a part of me that thinks I should take this job and there's another part that thinks I shouldn't take this job. Or there's a part of me that thinks I should move to Chicago and another part that thinks I should stay. So, um, so it's that sense of, uh, of lacking coherence within. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, aloneness can be scary because the self is separate from everything. Uh, and yet you have no idea what this self is. Uh, aloneness can be scary because the self is separate from everything and yet you have no idea what this self is. Who are you if stripped of all the props and stories such as self-narratives, ideas, feelings, views, and knowledge that promise security that you have created in your life? Beyond all the things that you have worked hard to possess, what is this void and separateness that you feel? Uh, deep down, you know that Everything is unstable, subject to change. Even if you try to find this I, the seeker escapes your own grasp. The seeker escapes your own grasp. Deep down, you don't know the answer to who am I. In seeking, there is more confusion uh, inside and out. This is the inevitability of self-referentiality. So at one point I had this realization, you know, um, uh, who are the stories in your head being told to? Find out about that one. <laughs> and, and Peg, I'm curious, what's, what potentially is the role of witness? Witness so, is just another split off self. Yeah. <coughs> I noticed um, in one of the breakout groups during the intensive, we were talking about uh, maybe one of the, the uh, eightfold path. I'm not sure what it was, but everyone had everyone in the fact that they weren't doing this thing as well as they thought they should. Yeah, had such problems with themselves. It, it was really to, to the person. Right. You know, each, each one of us did that. It was very interesting to yeah. hear that, and and really, um, you know, everyone's okay, but. <laughs> but when they started comparing themselves to this idealized version of themselves, that it didn't in their mind. Yeah. John teaches that the self or I is just an illusion. 
a byproduct of the circularity and complex working of sense faculties, sense objects, and discursive thinking. There is nothing permanent or fixed about this self. In fact, its true nature is freedom, <coughs> interconnectedness, and flow. I comes from non-I. You come from non-you. This means that your self-image, core values, and feelings come from many people, things, and interconnecting experiences. Not only do your experiences change, but everything, everyone changes despite your ideas about them. The wonderful thing about this is that everything is possible, full of potential. Resisting this fluidity with fixation is suffering. If you examine the source of your misery, you will see that the heart of the problem is this resistance to change. Why is this? Because the idea of the I is deep-rooted. Yet your true non-abiding nature is freedom, the freedom of no self. The truth is that moment to moment, there's just aliveness and ever new beginnings. As soon as you drop your baggage, it is left behind. There is no one forcing you to hold on to it. All the conditioning, acquired experiences, and knowledge do not need to be part of some fixed notions of I or mine. Life can continue to evolve wonderfully, connecting with others without being a fixed I. Sure, you need to self on a conventional level, but you should never be bound by fixed notions of I, me, or mine. This is the message of Chan. A monk once asked a Chan master, I want to be free. How do I obtain freedom? Isn't this a common question for all spiritual seekers? The master replied to the monk, who's binding you? If you want to experience freedom, if you feel stuck in life, then take the gongans in this book as pointers to begin your journey to awakening. This translation and commentary. Commenting on gongans is like chewing someone else's chewed up gum thrown on the floor. <laughs> what taste is there? Why bother? Surely only a fool would do it. John Master Wu Min has already chewed up these cases of awakening stories of earlier masters. Now I have picked up his chewed up gum. <laughs> Can there be any taste left in it? Are the words in this book completely dead? This depends on you, the reader. The greatest barrier was com compiled in a time and place very different from our own. Who went Women's comments and poems, uh, and poems address the needs of mostly John monastic practitioners. Our times are different. Your comments aim to bring the relevance of these goals back to life for people like you in everyday situations of family life, work, and friendship. It is up to you to see these goals through the crimson. Bramson, right? Bramson of your life. This is how to make each case come to life, to squeeze juice out of the juice of gum. If you do this, you will find the book quite flavorful. In turn, we call this process uh, weed the lock, sprouting new leaves. Is it me, Nelda, next? Yes. Uh -huh. All right. Thank you. My comments on the gateless barrier originated in my talks at the Tallahassee Trans Center on the first Monday night of each month 
that began on September 6, 2010 and ended on June 2, 2014. I gave the talks for my students in hopes that these gongs will inspire them to practice. A correct view and a strong practice is essential before Chan practitioners dive into the ocean of Buddhist scriptures. And scriptures are important, but if practitioners lose sight of their intent, their self-grasping can be reinforced and perpetuated. I gave talks on these gongons before I taught my students scriptural teachings and Buddhist doctrines because I don't want their practice to be tainted by concepts and theories and expectations. Contrary to what people may imagine gongongs to be, absurd, irrational, fictional, and so on, there are actually wonderful methods to develop correct view and practice. However, they are not for the faint-hearted, and a teacher's guidance is indispensable. I encourage you, the reader, to use this book in the same manner that I taught my students, as a guide to free yourself from views. The path of John leaves no traces. I must admit that my words are worthless traces. They are worthless because they are not yours. You have to digest these kongans and my comments and make them your own. Without traces, how can one even begin the journey of awakening? Without signposts, how can the wisdom of Chan be brought to life? I have tried to bring these arcane stories in the gateless barrier to life in plain English and to show how rich and familiar they are, they actually are. Traditional Buddhist scriptural commentaries are usually expository in nature, laying out the theoretical underpinning, the main tenets, and explaining terms or ideas clearly in a logical fashion. Commentarial treatises lead to knowledge. Gongan comments are not expository and do not lead to knowledge. Traditional Gongan comments do not give any concrete advice about so-called practice. This is because the original context in which the Gongans were set is Buddhist monasticism. Monks and nuns already know how to practice, so practical advice is left out. Yet, because of this lack of concrete advice for practice, modern people find them inaccessible and removed from daily life. This book avoids the cave caveats of both traditional scriptural commentaries and Gongan comments. Had I taken either approach in making my remarks on this text, it would have killed the spirit in which Gongans are meant to be used. I provide enough context and background in this book to make it accessible without being intellectual. My aim is to help you probe the way you live your life. In doing so, I give concrete advice on methods of practice and attitudes toward life. There are a number of translations and commentaries on the gateless barrier, all of them presenting the Japanese Zen perspective. The present work is the first Chinese Chan commentary on the gateless barrier in the English language. I translated the cases directly from the original Chinese. Readers will notice that this translation Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's going to go eight times. <laughs> Beautiful. Readers will notice that this translation differs in a number of places from existing English translations. Several dates of past Chan masters are also corrected in this current book. 
I have included an index of names in the back of the book, which provides both Chinese and Japanese pronunciations of names mentioned in this text for the benefit of those practicing in either Chan or Zen traditions. I have also provided Chinese characters for all the names and terms of the index for those who read Chinese or kanji. I think it's you, Annie. You're muted. Yes, I'm okay. I muted myself. Sorry. <laughs> I was reading. Y'all weren't here with me, but I was reading. <laughs> How to use this book. Most people come to read or study Gong An's through the Japanese Zen perspective, one that is deeply shaped by the great Zen master Hakuin Ekaku, who classified koans, the Japanese term for Gong An's, into different levels. Over the centuries, his descendants in different sublineages set his koan classification into different orders of investigation involving learning capping phrases or poetic verses, more hints and signposts that are connected to each case. These capping phrases became answer books to different koans and served with other purposes as well partly as aids to better grasp the cases and partly to learn the form of Chan poetics. Zen students in the past used to spend a long time learning this formalized and highly literary curriculum. In the modern West, the cultural context has changed. There is no need to stick to a systematized way to engage in Gong An or Koan study. There's certainly no need to learn the literary culture of Chan in Chinese. Thus, in different Zen centers, most teachers are not bound by the pre-modern way of doing koan study. In Chan Buddhism, gong-ans were never systemized. Naturally, I don't teach gong-ans this way. I hope this book brings a breath of fresh air to gong-an or koan practice. My hope is to show you that the gateless spirit, like peeling away the skin of a lynch, removing the seed as you can eat the fruit, my comments have already peeled away the trappings to reveal the essence of each. All you have to do now is just eat. I can't chew the, leaf, the fruit for it. similarly. This book provides perspectives that shed light on how you live, how you love, how you may be free. You can pick up any of the individual cases and contemplate them in your life. If, however, you plan to use the cases in this book as your primary method of meditation practice in the traditional way, using them as going on or Watao investigations, then you must receive proper instructions from a qualified Chan or Zen teacher. Chan practice cannot be learned from books. The books are just maps. You need a guide. Even the teachers cannot walk the path of awakening for you. They can guide you so that you don't go down the wrong path or waste your In real practice, much like walking in a new terrain, the map in your hand may look completely different than what you see. This book is not a substitute for having a teacher, nor is it a manual for investigating gongons without the guidance of it. If you don't have a teacher, find one. If you are already working on a gongon or koan from the gateless barrier under Chan or Zen teacher, then this book may help you see things in a new light. If you use a huatu or gong from this book in your seated meditation and daily life, 
my comments will fuel your sense of wonderment and questioning. They will also help you develop the ability to see through the veils of delusion, vexation, suffering, so you can drop them and absorb yourself in steady questioning. You will learn not to practice like a tsunami wave that has great energy in the beginning but does not last. You will learn how patience, earnestness, and being steadfast are the key to nourishment, the sense of wonderment. In daily life, each time vexation arises, just bring forth the Huatu and give rise to the questioning mind. Doing so will divert attention from vexations and will quickly allow you to put them down. My comments in this book on various aspects of Bong practice will, sorry, help you to do this. If you are new to practice or to gongons, this book is still helpful. It shows you how life and practice are inseparable. You may use this book to help you see different angles of your life. Use it to reveal how you actually live your life. Use it to expose your attachments to gain and loss, having and lacking, right and wrong, love and hate. In other words, even if you don't formally use the gongon as a meditation method, you can use my comments as a mirror to reflect on yourself. During retreats under the guidance of a qualified teacher in a protected environment, it is all right for beginners to investigate the gongon and huatu. This is because a qualified teacher is present. In retreats, if your mind comes up with different answers to the gongon you're meditating on, say to yourself, this is not it, and let them go. Continue to investigate and absorb yourself wholeheartedly in the Huatu. Since everything is taken care of for you in the retreat, you can completely dive into the method and let go of everything else. In the beginning of practice, because your mind is still wrapped up with words and language, it is natural for it to give rise to all kinds of answers. But in principle, meditating on a Huatu or Gongan should not generate more concepts and notions. Allow them to die down. Gongan or Huatu practice is meant to give rise to the sense of wonderment and not knowing until you are completely engulfed by it in a unified state of oneness. When conditions ripen, a catalyst will shatter this oneness so the I drops away. If you are a beginner to meditation, start with a method such as awareness of your breaths to stabilize your body and mind. Do this for some time until you are ready for meditation retreats. You have to first learn how to meditate in order to discern the difference between wandering thoughts and correct thoughts. At first, beginners may not really distinguish between the two. They think that their thoughts, view, and opinions are theirs. They think that they understand a gong on when they, actually, when they are actually just following their passing, wandering thoughts. <laughs> passing thoughts are mostly based on misperceptions fragmented memory, and random self-referential ideas, none of which express how things actually are. So when you meditate on the breath, for example, learn to recognize thoughts and put them down. Return to the breath. In time, by continually returning to the method, the power that wandering thoughts have over your will, have over you, will diminish. You will develop stability and maturity in your practice. When your teacher feels you are ready, 
you may formally start your gongon or huatu practice. Chan is not psychotherapy. Psychotherapy, to simplify its aim, is to clarify the self. Chan practice lets go of the self. There is really no need to find the source of the vexations or suffering. Simply see through them as props and fabrications of the self-referential mind and put them down. Stop identifying with them and you become grounded in the present moment, the task at hand, and how things actually are, instead of being caught up with a pattern of how you want things to be or how you wish things were different. This is why when you're free from these habitual patterns, you become more grounded and congruent. In Chan, you have you have to have a stable self before you let go of self. The principle in daily life is to keep the mind clear and focused on the task at hand. Every once in a while, you can bring forth the teachings in this book, especially when vexations arise. Develop a regular practice, find a good teacher, and use the teachings in this book to experience life time you will be more receptive and some of your old habits may no longer trouble you even if your deeply rooted vexations might still be there you will be able to work through them uh, one of the core teachings in this book is to learn to face embrace respond and let go of fixations and john is here in the west <coughs> for you right now this book brings the wisdom of Chan down from the clouds to earth directly to you. It opens a gate to the gateless barrier and shows you how different situations in life are opportunities to practice. Chan, life, practice, all of these are just gateless barriers. Are you ready to freely pass through them? Any merit or benefit you may derive from this book belongs to you and to my teacher, Master Shen Yan, May you realize the gateless barrier. Okay, I think we actually should stop there because we don't want to start with the koans, but um, I don't know if everybody knows the process we're going to use for um, meeting each of these koans, which is uh, first to just read the koan and then sit for five minutes and then to read the koan and the woman's comment uh, and then to sit for five minutes and then to write for five minutes, just whatever, uh, whatever strikes you. And then we'll read the Guogu commentary. Uh, and if we have time left at the end, we'll, uh, we'll have time for a discussion. So by this way, we get a chance to really sink our teeth into these, uh, this, these koans and also to uh, read Guogu's wonderful commentary. I mean, brilliant. But I think it's really lovely that this, um, this is the first uh, translation directly from the Chinese into English and, and by a Chinese teacher. So. Uh, but he's also very uh, contemporary and, uh, you know, has perfect command of English, as you can tell. Yes. So, um, so I think it's going to be uh, a joy to, to have a chance to read these together. So I, I think it's going to be interesting, too. I'm sorry I'm going to have to miss some, but I'm curious um, what he s says about readiness, about being ready. Uh -huh. Not to do it until you're ready are qualified or have a solid practice? Well, not to, not to undertake serious uh, going on or koan practice until you're working with a teacher. Uh, but that doesn't, you know, he's, he's given lots of different possibilities for using this book, if you're, even if you're not doing that, even if you're just curious or just interested, or you want to take them up in the way that we often do in Soto Zen. There's something that just sort of percolates through your life 
as you're um, as you're meeting it, mm. and uh, and instead of just like sitting and meditating on it, you're allowing it just to permeate your life and uh, mm. not trying to make any effort to, to resolve it. So it's sort of like a not a myth, but like a med- metaphor, or not. Um, <laughs> I was thinking of another word, but it doesn't come into my brain right now. Ah, yeah, no, um, but. But what happens is it has a kind of catalytic effect because it's not operating under the same principles of logic that much of our thinking operates under and sort of defeats those tendencies. And so, so I, think, um, I think he's right. If you use these as a way to increase your wonderment, um, that will be a good use of that. Yeah. Increase wonderment. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So Peg, would you like us to come in each time without having read these ahead of time to just come in, you know, cold turkey and experience them as is? I don't think that really matters, you know, because when we're reading, it's so different from when we're hearing and engaging these um, in that way. So, yeah, I, you know, you probably, it's probably not going to do you much good to read them uh, in advance. Um, But I don't think there's any real reason not to. I mean, I wouldn't prescribe it, but just a sense, of, just to have the sense of, I think this real sense of wonder in meeting these, these gongons. Yeah. So Peg, I have a question. If um, Yeah. Right. So, you know, one of the points that we, uh, that was discussed in this introduction is the fact that, you know, something that we've discussed many times in this group and, and other places is the, um, the nature of words themselves being a barrier to fully understanding and sometimes those get in the way. So I'm just wondering if when you say we're going to write our first impressions, that that's sort of a, uh, the, those directions are sort of loose and that we feel compelled to draw something or something like that. Yeah, no, that that's would... fine. It's just some response. Um, uh, it might be that what comes up for you is some question or, um, or it may point to something directly that you are experiencing in your life or, you know, so it's just an opportunity to have a little bit of a um, connection from your own experience. And then, uh, and then we um, will read the commentary and see if that sheds any light on it, which I have no doubt it will uh, that Google has written. And then if we have any time left over, then we can talk about, what your your first impression and what you you know how that might have been deepened or altered or changed Guogu's commentary. Yeah, I just know for myself that since I am you know dealing with words all the time and I tend to yeah. be the type of person that's you know do, left brain dominated the yeah. you know, bringing bringing some different yeah. Yeah, you definitely could use drawing draw with your non-dominant hand. <laughs> <laughs> really baffle yourself, you know. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Eric, I'm curious if there's techniques in understanding, no, and working with koans that would be transferable to your engineering. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm curious about that as well. I think, I think a lot of the conceptualization that comes before solutions are verified or, or you know, come into existence is, is very nonverbal. So... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I'll take that as a colon. Yeah. We start in a state of wonder, you know, um, and then we start piecing together our story about what, pe- who, what people are, 
what we are in it. But initially, I mean, this is one of the great things about what's happened with the pandemic that although it's many not great things have happened, but the fact that it has tossed people, you know, that their familiar routines and their ideas about how things work and how things are supposed to work have totally been tossed. So this, um, this actually invites a sense of wonderment, right? Yeah, I, I really love the idea of um, letting go of thinking that you have to come up with an answer and yeah. trying to figure it out. I, I like the idea because it, it's this I don't know mind that, you know, we, we hear about, you know, and it, I like having a, having a puzzle and then just letting it kind of sink without your mind coming in trying to solve it, you know? Yeah. I like that. I think it's, you know, like, it's like a curiosity wakes up in me. Yeah. And then, and then when you're really, really like stumped by something, you really can't think of an answer, you know, and it's, you're open. <laughs> That's right. You're open and you're um, uh, frustrated and you're baffled and all the things that we feel about this pandemic, right? You're in a box. You You can't, you can't figure out how to go forward. You can't figure out how to go backward. You, you're sort of, uh, sort of at completely at sea, right? So, so that's one of the reasons why I thought this would be a very good thing for us, <laughs> since we're already Thank there. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Have a wonderful evening, and I will you see too. you online at some point. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Bye, everybody. Thank good night. you. Good night. Bye. 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 Bye.